Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, John. Uh, let me add my welcome uh, to Duncan's. My name is uh, Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here, and it is super to have you with us this morning. Uh, now, we're going to be thinking about a few verses in Mark's account of the life of Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, verses 7, we'll read in from verse 7 to verse 35. It would be helpful if you could have that open in front of you as I read it over the next minute or two, and then we'll think about it together. So Mark chapter 3, verse 7 to verse 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagernes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, and they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Before we think about that together for a few minutes, let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, God, we praise you this morning as one who has revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. 
And we ask now that as we study this portion of the scriptures together over the course of the next few minutes, you would please help each one of us in this room to have ears to hear and hearts that are ready to respond. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, some of you will be aware that uh, two weeks today, uh, the Football World Cup kicks off in Qatar. And uh, no matter how excited or perhaps otherwise some of you are at the prospect of wall-to-wall football, well, your anticipation won't really compare to the people who are right now waiting to find out if they're going to play in the World Cup. I heard an interview with one such person last week. He was uh, pretty confident of being called up to play for his national team. But it was possible, he said, that he would only find out that he hadn't made the cut, that he wasn't in the squad, when the squad was announced in the press and his name wasn't in it. And that kind of experience of, of, of realizing that someone has taken the place that you thought was yours... Well, it isn't an especially pleasant one. I wonder if it's one that you can empathize with. Perhaps you confidently counted yourself to be part of a a close-knit group of friends. But when the time came for the invitation to be sent out to a party or a gathering, you didn't get one. Or maybe you've had that experience, I certainly have, of going to a job interview and thinking it went rather well, eh, only as you're waiting to hear back from those prospective employers bumping into another one of the candidates who merrily tells you that they got the job. That realization that someone has taken the place that you thought was yours can be a very disappointing thing indeed. But in Mark's account of Jesus' life, The prospect of that kind of experience stands not just as a potential disappointment, but as a stark warning. We meet three different groups of people in Mark chapter 3, two of whom have every reason to think that they will make the cut, so to speak, when it comes to Jesus, that they'll be part of the eternal kingdom he came proclaiming back in chapter 1. One group's expectation is founded on their spiritual credentials. They are part of the religious elite of Jesus' day. And another group's expectation founded on their family ties. Jesus was their own flesh and blood. And yet nailed on as they might seem, even those grounds of confidence don't cut the mustard when it comes to God's kingdom. If you reject Jesus, then no matter your credentials, Jesus will ultimately reject you. That's our big idea this morning. Now I'm conscious that might sound like a very negative tone to take, a negative way of framing Mark chapter 3, because this doesn't feel as though it's a negative chapter as we read through it, does it? There's the great excitement as Jesus calls his new representatives, those 12 representatives in verses 13 to 19. There's that wonderful image of his new family, verses 31 to 35. I should be being more upbeat about Mark chapter 3, surely. And there is a really wonderful side to Mark 3, which we'll touch on later. But the tone is primarily one of warning. 
And we know that, firstly, because we're hot on the heels of the first major opposition that Jesus has faced in Mark's account. We saw that last week, didn't we? Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Now, no matter how bubbly and upbeat a disposition you might have, well, a murder plot sets a pretty downbeat tone, doesn't it? And the structure of the rest of Mark 3 also points us in that direction. There are two bookends in our reading this morning, two pieces on the outside that correspond to each other. In verses 7 to 19, the first bookend, Jesus is instituting a new order, calling those 12 new representatives... And then in verses 31 to 35, the second bookend, Jesus is instituting a new family of God. But if the outsides tell us about new representatives and about a new family, well, in the middle, verses 20 to 30, we meet people who think they are the real representatives of God and people who look like they are the real family of Jesus. But both of them reject Jesus' claims about himself. And so both of them are rejected in return. And so rather than focusing on the wonderful new thing that Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 3, Mark's main aim, I think, is that we consider whether we are part of that new thing at all. Let's think about that under our first heading this morning. Next slide, please, Samuel. Thank you. Rejecting Jesus makes no sense. Now, some of you will have heard of C.S. Lewis. He was um, a scholar and an author at uh, Oxford University early in the 20th century. And Lewis argued that people had three reasonable options open to them when it comes to Jesus' identity. Lewis writes this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Jesus couldn't be the the, the respectable figure that many people in our culture have him pegged for, says Lewis. No, given what Jesus did and said, Jesus was either mad, he was bad, or he was who he claimed to be, he was God. And Lewis's argument helpfully articulates the three different reactions we see to Jesus in Mark chapter 3. Just walk through those with me. Read verse 20 with me again. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus is being mobbed by crowds, such was his popularity, and and through the crowds come Jesus' own flesh and blood family. And they're rather less enamored with what they're hearing than everyone else seems to be. They make what would perhaps in today's terms be called an intervention. Jesus' own family seem to think he's having some kind of an episode, so they step in and effectively arrest him for Jesus' own safety, or at least they attempt to. And it is worth saying that if the only information they had to go on was Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, God's rescuing King, well, that might be an understandable conclusion. 
Over the years, quite a number of people have claimed to be God on earth, God in the flesh. Just two or three months ago, in fact, a New York Times best-selling author began to post claims on her social media accounts that she was God in person. And people's overwhelming response to those posts was one of great concern for her. But you see, the thing is, Jesus' claim to be the Son of God wasn't all that his family had to go on. Just remember that up to this point, Jesus has been hailed as God's son by God himself, audibly. He's shown himself to have supernatural authority, authority even enough to cast out sickness. And did you notice, as we read a few moments ago, that even the evil spirits whom Jesus was casting out of people call him, verse 11, the son of God. And so you see the suggestion that Jesus is mentally unstable Well, it just doesn't make sense of the data. But if Jesus isn't delusional, are we instead to understand that he's up to no good? Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Now, Beelzebul is another name for Satan or the devil. And so the claim of this second group, these scribes from Jerusalem isn't that Jesus is mad, but that he's bad. He's only able to do what he's doing because he's possessed, possessed by the personal actor of evil in the world, by Satan. And in response to that suggestion, we aren't so much asked to consider the evidence. No, this time we're forced to consider the logic. Jesus points out that that explanation just doesn't make any sense. Uh, Just imagine for a moment that you're uh, walking along Union Street on an average weekday, and as you're passing uh, a shop, uh, you glance in the window, and you happen to notice that the staff in the shop are lying tied up on the floor. And there's a van parked outside into which a man dressed in dark clothes and with a ski mask on is loading stuff from the shop into the van. Now generally we might want to give people the benefit of the doubt wherever we can, But in that instance, well, you're unlikely to conclude that the masked man is an employee of the shop, are you? No, he's obviously working against the shop. He's taking things from the shop. And you see, that's the kind of logic Jesus uses in his response to the scribes. Verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. You see, Jesus is so clearly working against Satan. He's casting out demons. Of course he isn't on Satan's side. And not only is he anti-Satan, well, he's stronger than Satan too. Verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. You see, the irony is that rather than working with Satan, as the scribes are suggesting, Jesus had come to overthrow Satan and the powers of evil. And his casting out of spirits is evidence that he's strong enough to do that. And you see, all of that taken together does force us to reckon with what we make of Jesus, doesn't it? 
Perhaps you've bought the view that's generally accepted in our culture that Jesus was an inspirational leader or or, or a teacher on a par perhaps with Gandhi or the Dalai Lama. Well, if that is you, it is worth clocking that the people who saw him in action didn't really think that option was on the table. They thought he was one of three options. He was mad, he was bad, or he was God. And Mark is narrowing those options right down for us, isn't he? He isn't mad. He does miraculous things, and he did them in full, of, in full view of huge crowds. He isn't bad. He was acting against the powers of evil in the world. And so the option that Mark would have us reflect on as the logical explanation on Jesus' identity is that he is God's king. He is God himself. And actually, Mark wants us to see that not only is that the only logical conclusion, it's also the only safe one. Because rejecting Jesus' claim to be God's rescuing king, God himself, well, it will ultimately result in his rejection of you. And we'll see that under our next point this morning. Rejecting Jesus makes no sense And it will ultimately result in his rejection of you. Now think back for a moment to the illustration we began with this morning. To that realisation that you're not on the party guest list. That you didn't make the cut. That realisation will only feel like an unpleasant surprise. If you were expecting to make the cut, won't it? I'm not going to be all that disappointed, for example, if I don't receive a call to play for the American national football team at the World Cup, mainly because I'm not American and I'm not very good at football. But I might be disappointed not to receive an invitation, for example, to a family member's wedding, because I'm expecting to receive that invite. And you see, of the two categories of people who reject Jesus in Mark 3... Well, both of them might have had reason to expect that they would make the cut when it came to Jesus and to God's kingdom. That first group, the religious group made up of of the Pharisees and the Herodians we met last week and the scribes we meet this week, well, they might well have understood themselves to be representative of God's people. That's actually hinted at by Mark telling us, verse 22, that the scribes travelled all the way from Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people. It's as if they're a delegation, they're ambassadors working on behalf of God's people. And yet any sense of expectation they might have had of being specially favoured by God is burst in verse 13 and following. It never given a clue that something major is happening because of where it happens. Jesus calls people notice up a mountain. Big moments of revelation often happen in the Bible on mountains. Think, for example, of Moses meeting with God on Mount Sinai. But the real bombshell isn't quite so much in where it happens as it is in who is involved, or more particularly, in how many people are involved. I wonder if you notice that. Verse 14. And Jesus appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. Now, if you know the story of God's dealings with his people, Israel had originally been comprised of twelve tribes, each tribe named after the twelve sons of Jacob, way back in the book of Genesis. And so we're being asked, I think, to contrast those two things. 
Jesus taking his people up a mountain and choosing 12 representatives on the one hand and the scribes who think they represent God on the other. And so you see, to the Pharisees and the Herodians of verse 6, or the scribes of verse 22, Jesus' appointment of these new representatives is effectively the squad list being published, or the wedding invitations being sent out, and they haven't made the cut. Now that's one of the the bookends. The second comes in verses 31 to 35. Let's read in from verse 32. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if the Jewish elites might have felt they had a claim on Jesus because of their religion, well, Jesus' family might reasonably have felt they had a claim on him because of their relationship to him. But can you see, Jesus is setting out the terms of engagement. If you reject Jesus and his claim to be God's king, even if you're a blood relation... Well, when the squad list for God's kingdom is published, you're going to be sorely disappointed because your name is not on it. But if that still seems like a bit of a stretch to you to see all of that as as a negative or as a warning, well, the killer blow comes at the end of Jesus' exchange with the scribes, a little section which I suspect made some of our ears prick up as we read it. Just read it again with me, verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now things seem to take a bit of a turn there, don't they? But why does Jesus suddenly start talking about an unforgivable sin? Is, is it a diversion tactic, perhaps? He's, he's trying to change the subject from his identity onto something else. Well, no, it's quite the opposite. Verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then read on. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. All other sins can be forgiven, says Jesus. But the unforgivable sin, the conduct with eternal consequences, is a settled refusal to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. It's to see Jesus and to call him evil. And so no matter what your credentials might be, well, rejecting Jesus' claims about himself will ultimately result in his eternal rejection of you. That's the point of this big section. Now, what are we meant to do with all of that? Because I think it's, it's probably safe to assume that no one in this room this morning thinks they have any kind of claim over Jesus because they're related to him. But it is absolutely possible to think we have a claim over Jesus by virtue of our family relationships. 
I remember uh, chatting with one young man, a student in our previous church in Edinburgh. He was new to the city. It was his first time visiting us. And uh, after a while of chatting, I gently decided I would ask him whether he would consider himself to be a Christian or not. My dad is a minister, he said. And that's all he said. My dad or my family are committed to God's work. And that means, of course, I'm okay with them too. It's kind of a package deal, really. And that is quite a common view, actually. Someone else I met once uh, was asked to explain how they became a Christian and said that they had always been a Christian because they were born into a family of Christians who were a key part of their local church. And you see, that same kind of mindset can creep into our perception, not just of our relational credentials, if you like, but our spiritual credentials. We've thought about this over the past couple of weeks, haven't we? If you were here two Sundays ago, we thought about Jesus' claim to be a doctor who came for spiritually sick people, not for people who thought they were spiritually well. Perhaps thinking you're spiritually well because you go to church or take communion, or have a vast knowledge of the scriptures, or are quite morally upright, at least compared to everyone else you come across in day-to-day life. Well, you see, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is ramping things up. His point here is not just that if you reject him, you're rejecting the doctor who came to bring you healing. No, the point in Mark 3 is that if you reject his claim to be Lord and Savior, then no matter your credentials, ultimately, He will reject you and will do so eternally. And so perhaps you're here this morning and have yet to make a decision for yourself, still contemplating whether Jesus was mad, bad or God. But you don't feel any real pressure about that decision because your family are a key part of the church you grew up in. Or because you're a pretty decent person overall. You're a shoe-in for God's kingdom. Well, if that is you, please let me say you are most welcome here and please do keep coming along and hearing what what Mark has to tell us about the Lord Jesus, what Jesus says about himself. But please also bear in mind that Jesus says there are serious, serious consequences to the decision you make. Eternal consequences, in fact. So please don't rest on your laurels, whether religious or relational laurels, when it comes to Jesus. He calls you to make a decision about him, and the stakes are just so very high. But again, one last time, let me take you back to those illustrations we began with this morning, to the disappointment of realizing you didn't make the cut for the World Cup squad, or the wedding guest list, or the job interview. There is another side to each of those scenarios, isn't there? There's the person who does make the squad. And you see, for that person, reading the squad list in the press release and spotting their name, or hearing the invitation drop through their letterbox, well, that's good news, isn't it? And that good news is where we'll end this morning, briefly, under our final heading. Accepting him means becoming part of his family. Just look with me again at verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now the will of God, we've already seen in Mark's account, is to repent. 
That means to turn away from our rebellion against, our disobedience towards God, and to believe, to trust in the good news about Jesus, that he has come as God's rescuing king, the one who would die on a cross to forgive human sin. Those are the terms, the only terms by which we can approach this Jesus. Not on the basis of family commitment to Jesus or our own spiritual CV, But if those are the means by which we can relate to him, well, the nature of the relationship on offer is just mind-blowing. To accept Jesus on his terms, he says, is to become part of his family. And to help us feel the weight of that, just notice one tiny detail Mark includes in verse 34. Looking about at those who sat around him, he said... Here are my mother and my brothers. I was once talking with a friend of mine about this passage, and he invited me to imagine sitting in that room as Jesus scans around each person sitting in front of him, and he looks you in the eye and calls you brother, mother, family. It's amazing. And it's amazing because of exactly who this Jesus is. He is God's long-awaited rescuing king in the terms of Mark chapter 1. Or in Mark chapter 3, he is the strong man, the one who came to bind and overthrow Satan and all his devices. And here, he calls you family. And if you're a Christian, I wonder if you really believe that. You see, by definition, Christians are people who've come to terms with the fact that Jesus came to deal with our sin problem, to make us right with God. But it can all become a bit clinical in our minds, or a bit transactional, if you like. Perhaps you imagine Jesus to be like a hotshot lawyer who rode in on a white horse to, to, to get you off of a certain charge, but now he really doesn't have time for you anymore. He's moved on to more important things. Mark 3 doesn't let us get away with transactional, does it? If you have repented and believed in Jesus, he calls you brother. It's such relational language, isn't it? Such permanent language. And there are a couple of applications of that, I think. The first of which is a reminder that this is what is involved when we tell people about Jesus. That's been a dominant note in our studies in Mark so far, hasn't it? And we'll think more about that in Mark chapter 4 next Sunday. We aren't inviting people to share in our interests, to join in our club when we tell them about Jesus. No, we're encouraging them, inviting them to accept him as king and to be welcomed into his family, his worldwide eternal family. And it is a wonderful invitation And yet at the same time, as we've seen this morning, the stakes involved when people reject him are dreadful. And so if that won't stir us to speak, to tell people the good news, well, I don't know what will. That's the first application. And the second is quite a simple simple one, but hopefully a profound one nonetheless. It is simply to marvel. To marvel at the kindness of God. 
that this strong man, the one with authority to cast out sickness and evil, would call you, would call me sinful and weak, though we are, brother, sister, mother. That is good news indeed, isn't it? Let's respond to it now in prayer. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge too this morning the stakes involved should we choose to reject you. And so we ask, please, if there are any of us here who think that by virtue of spiritual credentials, family credentials, any credentials that are not Jesus and his cross alone, would you please confront us with the danger we are in? And by your Holy Spirit, would you please draw us to your cross as the only place of safety, we pray. And for those of us who have trusted in you, would you please help us to grasp that? To speak of that and to marvel at that. Warm our hearts for you this morning as we reflect on those extraordinary words. Whoever does the will of God, who repents and believes, he is my brother and sister and mother. We ask all of this for our joy and for your glory, and we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.